Fathers, we come to this story of Abraham and how you made this contract with him, Lord, this everlasting contract to bless him and bless his descendants. Lord, help us to see today just how those blessings pass on down to us. The same way in which you blessed him is the way in which you bless us, Lord. And and, uh, thank goodness it's that way, Lord, that it's all up to you, that our salvation is your work, it's not our work, that our sanctification is is your work, it's not our work, and Lord, that even our glorification is, is, is all your work. And so, Lord, we just look forward to, to what you're going to do in our lives in, in the coming years and throughout eternity as, as we draw closer to Jesus Christ. And eventually, Lord, as we pass on from this earth and we go to be with you in heaven and then rule and reign with you on this earth. Lord, there's just so much good news uh, in this Abrahamic covenant that that uh, we can only touch on today. And I ask today that by the power of your spirit that we do just that, that you show us just how wonderful this covenant is. And, uh, Lord, if there's someone in here that's not sure that they're, they've entered into that covenant of faith, Lord, help them to uh, be convicted of that today. And, Lord, help them to receive Christ in their hearts and be born again. Father, we just, again, just thank you for all your teaching us Uh, in the book of Genesis, and we ask that you continue to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Today we're going to be looking in chapter 17 at this contract that God makes with Abraham that we call the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, When we think of a contract, we think of an agreement between at least two parties uh, in which each party is obligated to do, meet the conditions that they've agreed upon. And the contract goes on for a certain period of time stated in the agreement. Well, in this contract that God's going to make with Abraham, uh, it's different because it is an everlasting contract. It is an unconditional contract. In other words, when I say unconditional, it means that everything that takes place in this contract, all the obligations that are to be met are met by God himself. They're not met by Abraham. Abraham is just the recipient of all the things that they agreed to. All Abraham had to do to enter this agreement with God was to agree to be in agreement with God. And he did that by faith. And when he believed, we're told in Genesis 15, 6, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so he was given the very righteousness of God. And so he gets all the benefits of this contract, all of these blessings, all of these promises, the fulfillment of these promises are given to him by grace through faith. And what did God promise him? First of all, he promised him that he would have a son and that from his son would come uh, so many descendants that you couldn't count uh, the number of people. From his son would come a nation. From him would come a nation. Uh, In his seed would become one who would bless all of the nations. But I believe from Abraham's standpoint, the most important part of that agreement was that he made an agreement to let God or, or to allow God to be his God and to live with God and be with God and live before God for eternity. That's the very best part of the deal. And so God does it all. I mean, what a deal. And, and uh, we can get on that deal too, at least 
part of that deal. We're going to look at that a little bit later on. Uh, and all we have to do is to agree to be in agreement with God. We agree with what God has done for us by faith, and uh, we, we get in on the deal too. And, and so I, what I want to do is dig into this great deal today as we come to chapter number 17. So pick up with me in chapter number 17. And at this point, 13 years have passed uh, since Ishmael was born. And uh, we know that Ishmael was born as a result of uh, Abram's and, and Sarah's uh, uh, ill-advised plan to kind of help God along with his plan. And we, we, we know that's never a good thing. God doesn't need our help. And, and, but they have this son, Ishmael, and then God is silent for 13 years. They don't hear anything from God. And I believe in Sarah and Abram's mind, they felt that, that they had done the right thing, that Ishmael was the child of promise and that, that all of God's promises were going to be fulfilled through the son that Abram had with Hagar. But God had other ideas. Look with me beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 17. When Abram was 90 years old, now that would mean that Sarai was 80 years old at this point, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, Almighty God. Walk before me, and hey, by the way, be blameless. That's an easy thing to do, right? And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And what does Abraham do? Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, and we'll look at what God had to say with him, had to say to him here in just a second. So here's the Lord, and he appears to Abraham again, or to Abram at this point. And he's going to tell him, hey, what he's saying is, the deal is still on. The deal that I made with you earlier, it's still on, in spite of all your failures. In spite of the fact that you went down to Egypt when there was a famine and you didn't trust me. In in spite of the fact that you asked me for uh, a sign. In spite of the fact uh, that you made your biggest mistake when you decided you and Sarah would have a child, uh, Ishmael, and you would do that in order to help me along with my plan. Now, you've got to figure how Abraham's thinking at this point. He's thinking, man, I, I really messed up bad. And so he falls on his face before El Shaddai. And I believe the reason he fell on his face, no doubt, is that God appeared to him in all of his glory at this point. Now, uh, uh, in his Shekinah glory. And we know that, I'm pretty sure of that, because you look at verse 22, it says in verse 17, that when when the Lord had finished talking with Abram, God went up. So that means that God came down. God came down in all of his glory. We also see Abram falling on his face. And so why does Abram fall on his face? It's the same reason Daniel did when he saw the glorified Lord. I mean, you can't stand in the presence of the glorified Lord. John, when he saw the glorified Lord, he had walked with Jesus all those years for three years and, and was, was lying in his bosom all the time. But when he sees Jesus Christ in all his glory, he falls on his face. And that's what Abraham does. When Abraham saw Melchizedek, who was God in the flesh, he didn't fall on his face because he didn't appear to him in his glory. When he saw uh, the Lord as the Logos, the Word, in, in chapter fi- uh, 15, uh, he doesn't fall on his face. But now he falls on his face 
because he sees the Lord in all his glory. Tell you what, you ever see the Lord in all his glory, that's exactly what you're going to do. I mean, I am not, not because that's necessarily what I'm saying you need to do, because that's exactly what you're going to do when you see the Lord in all his glory. He's that magnificent, that wonderful, that marvelous, that unbelievable. I mean, there's no words to describe what the Lord looks like in all his glory. John does a pretty good job over in in, uh, Revelation chapter 1 describing the Lord in all his glory. But but when you see the Lord, I promise you, you're going to fall on your face, and that's what he does, because who is the Lord? The Lord tells Abram here, I am El Shaddai. I am Almighty God. That's exactly what he told John when John saw him in all his glory. John, you know, the guy who's been walking with you, all, who walked with you those three years uh, in, in the ministry that I'm uh, fulfilled on this earth. Hey, I am El Shaddai. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, the end, Almighty God. And so he sees Almighty God, and he sees him in his glory for a reason. I have no doubt that God appears to him for a reason. To show Abram that I am omnipotent. I am all-powerful. I have all power. I am God Almighty. That means That's what El Shaddai means. It means that God is omnipotent. He has all power. And I can do all things. So all of these things that I've promised you, even though you're 90 years old and Sarah is 80 years old, I've promised you that you're going to have a son, and you're going to have a son. And so El Shaddai says to Abram here, looking back at the text, he says, walk before me and be blameless. Now that's coming out of the word mouth of the glorified Lord. Walk before me and be blameless. And I think that's what God would say to all of us, that we're to walk before him and we're to be blameless. Now that looks to me on the surface like that's a condition. In other words, if you want me to do these great things for you, then you've got to walk before me and be blameless. And, 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 and good luck with a second condition. I mean, walking before the Lord. Yeah, I'll walk before you, Lord, but what about this being blameless? I mean, who can be blameless before the Lord? There's no way you can be walk blamelessly before the Lord. But we know, we're for sure, that this is not a conditional covenant. In chapter 17 alone, God uses the term my covenant uh, nine times. Three of, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uses the term covenant 13 times. And nine times, he calls it my covenant. Three times, he calls it an everlasting covenant. Only here does he say, this is my covenant between me and you. But he precedes that by the Words, this is my covenant. It's between me and you, but it's my covenant to keep. But here you see this phrase, you know, we're to, I'm to walk before me and be blameless, and it makes you wonder if there's not a condition there. But here's what I want you to see. Look, look through the text. Just run through this t- text of 17 with me for a second. And look at all the I wills here. Look at verse number two. And I will make my covenant. Look down at verse number uh, 5. I have made you father of many nations. He even speaks in past tense. 
Verse number 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make a nation of you. Look at verse number 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. And then you look down at verse number 8, I give to you and your descendants after you this land. Verse, the last part of verse number 8, I will be their God. You look down at verse number, jump down all the way down to verse number 16, and you see how this covenant applies to Sarah, and it's God doing it all. Verse number 16, he says, and I will bless her also, and I will bless her, and, and she shall be the mother of nations. And then this passes on down to Isaac, and it's still God's covenant, because he says in verse 21, uh, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. So it's I will, I will, I will, I have made, I will, I will, I will. So who's doing everything here? It's God. But it sounds like when God says walk before me and be blameless, that God is establishing some kind of conditions here. But he's not. He isn't, he isn't saying to him, You've got to walk before me and be blameless in order for me to do all of these I wills. What he was saying to him is because of all I'm going to do for you, here's your duty. Here's what you ought to do. You should walk before me and be blameless. Now, what's it mean to walk before God? To walk before God means that you walk before God cognizant of his presence. I mean, how many of you walk before God cognizant all the time that he is present in your soul. Christ in you, your hope of glory. Christ lives in you. That's our job. We're, because of all he's done for us, we walk before him. We recognize his presence in our lives. And we're cognizant of his presence. And then the other thing is, we're to be blameless. Well, blameless here really isn't a good, I mean, blameless isn't a good translation. A much better translation is that we're to walk in integrity, uh, that we're to walk in truth. Sounds a lot like what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember what he said to her? He said, God seeks those who worship him in spirit. In spirit, we worship him in spirit. That means we walk with him in the spirit. We, we walk in the spirit with him. We walk cognizant of the presence of God. And we, we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. What truth? The truth of the word. And what's the truth of the word? The truth of the word is what is the gospel. In essence, you want to sum up the whole word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does the gospel say to us? It says to us that we're sinners and that we can't save ourselves and that we can only be saved by Jesus Christ. And that should give us a contrite spirit. So when you're walking in truth, you're walking very humbly before the Lord. You're walking in his presence humbly. And that's what God was saying to Abram here. I'm going to do some great things for you, Abram. But because I'm doing these great things for you, this is what I expect for you. I expect for you to walk before me humbly. Walk before your God humbly. I love what Samuel told the Israelites over in 1 Samuel chapter 12. He said, now fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. Fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things the Lord has done for you. Why do we serve the Lord with all our heart and truth? Because we consider, we 
recognize all the great things that God has done for us. And we recognize his presence. Again, Christ in you, your hope of glory. God lives in you. That's why Paul says, pray without ceasing. He doesn't mean to get on your knees and get in your closet and never get up again. What he means by that is God is present in your life. And so we're always recognizing God's presence. We're walking and talking with God. We don't do anything without recognizing God's presence, without honoring him in what we do, without considering him in what we do. I mean, we do do things that that we don't consider him when we do what we do, but we shouldn't. That's what God expects of us. Now, that's not going to change the covenant if we don't do that. Because it's an unconditional covenant. But he says to Abraham, Abraham, you're part of my covenant now. You're going to be, you're going to be the father of nations. And I expect for you now to, to walk before me in, in spirit and in truth. All right, now. Let's go to verse number four. So Abram agrees to be part of God's covenant. He's agreed to be part of God's covenant. And so the Lord now is going to renew his promises to Abram. And Abram didn't have to do a thing. Look at verse number four. He says he's going to give him a son. He says in verse number four, As as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be, whatever you do, even though you went and had another kid that you wasn't supposed to have, made a mess of things, even though you did that, you shall be a father of many nations. Notice here the Lord said, this is my covenant. I mean, that means it's unconditional. No matter what you do from this point on, Abram, you're going to be a father of many nations. Then you look at verse number 5. No longer shall your name be Abram, Abram, but your name shall be Abram. Yom means nations. No, Abram means father. No longer shall you just be father. You shall be the father of many nations. I, I mean, I mean, if I'm Abram, I'm thinking, man, all I got right now is Ishmael, and he's not. He's an illegitimate son, and and you're going to say I'm going to be the father of nations? But God's making this promise. El should die. God in all his glory is making this promise. So Abram's saying, hey, man, this is going to this is going to really happen. And look at this next part. He says, for I have made you a father of many nations. In other words, look at the tense. It's past tense. It's as, it's as good as done. No matter what you do, this is unconditional. You're part of my agreement and I have made you a father of many nations. And verse number six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. How true is that? Some kings certainly came forth from Abraham, didn't they? I mean, we, we, we know all about David, and we know all about Solomon. All of the kings right now, that most of those kings that are over in the Middle East, you know where they come forth from? They come forth from Abraham. They came forth from, through Ishmael to Abraham. So Abraham certainly is a father of many kings. But you know who he was the father of? And in, in, the, in uh, uh, the greatest king ever, the king of kings and lord of lords. I mean, not a father in the sense of God the father, but father in the sense that through his seed came Jesus Christ. 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. And how long is this covenant going to last? Look at verse number 7. And I will establish my covenant. I wish all the replacement theology people would memorize this verse right here. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants, Israel. So he's talking about here. He's not talking about the spiritual Israel here. He's talking about the literal Israel here. After you, in their generation, for an, how long of a covenant? Everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your descendants after you. I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to be a God to your descendants forever, the Lord says. Now, that's a pretty amazing promise. Because Israel over and over again turned their back on God. But God never turned his back on Israel. Not one time did he turn his back on Israel. Now, it seemed at times like he did. I mean, we're looking at 2 Kings right now. We're seeing the the demise of the northern kingdom, the demise of the southern kingdom. I mean, in uh, 721 uh, B.C., Sennacherib came down and he slaughtered most of the Israelites in the northern kingdom and he took them back to Assyria as captive. In 586 B.C., we're coming up on that in 2 Kings, the the, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon came down and they destroyed Judah and the rest of the southern kingdom. And they took them captive. And it looked like it was all over for Israel. And then, and then later on they go, get back into the land. You study Ezra and Nehemiah and they get back into the land. And then Rome in 70 AD, they rebel against Rome. And Rome virtually destroys Israel. He destroys Judah and he scatters the Israelites throughout the world. And it seems like... This promise was never going to take place. You could look at this and you could basically say, God, you're a liar because this didn't happen if you'd looked at this in 1947. But what did God do? He brought those people back into the land. Why? Because of this everlasting covenant that he had made with Abraham. Now, it's going to look pretty bad for the Israelites in the Great Tribulation. They're going to go through a Holocaust worse than the last Holocaust that they went through with Hitler. And it's going to look like they're toast, that they're done for. But those times are times of judgment and testing that God has brought upon the nation of Israel. Not based upon the Abrahamic covenant, but based upon the covenant of law. And what was the covenant of law? You do good and you'll be blessed. You don't do good and you'll be cursed. And throughout history... They broke the law. They broke the number one law, which was to the Lord their God was to be their God. And they broke that law. And so they've been judged. But they have never been totally wiped out. God has always left a remnant when he has judged Israel. Why? Because of this everlasting covenant that he made with Abraham that we're looking at here today. And so... At times, it might seem like things are really bad for the nation of Israel and that they've lost, they might even lose possession of the land. But in the end, they will inhabit all of Canaan and they will inhabit it forever. I've I've taken you to this psalm before, but but, uh, go with me over to Psalms 105 because that whole covenant is summed up there in a, really good way over in Psalm 105. And and it makes it very clear that this isn't just a spiritual covenant. This covenant applies to the physical nation of Israel. 
And, and that everlasting covenant isn't just for the spiritual Israel. It's for the literal Israel. Look in Psalm 105 and pick up with me in verse number 7. And look at what it says. It says, He is the Lord, Jehovah our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Now, what's he saying right there? God judges all nations for their sin. Every nation, including Israel. But here's the difference. When he judges Israel, look at verse number 8. When he judges Israel, he remembers his covenant forever. He never forgets the fact that he made this Abrahamic covenant. Even when he's judging them, he's got to leave a remnant because he made this covenant. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham. That's exactly what we're looking at today. And his oath to Isaac is passed down to Isaac and has confirmed it to Jacob for a statue. And then to the Israelites for as an everlasting covenant. This covenant has been made to the nation of Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, you, I will give you the land of Canaan. Now, that's all the land of Canaan. That includes Jordan, and that includes all the way up into Syria and all the way down in, uh, to, to Egypt. That All that land, which the Israelites have never occupied. They came close in the time of David and Solomon, but they've never occupied all that land. But they're going to occupy it all forever. That's what the word says right here. As an allotment... For your inheritance. And that's ex- and so this is an everlasting covenant. And that's exactly what God says. Go back to Genesis 17. And you'll see how this ties in perfectly to verse number 8. Look at what he says in verse number 8. He says, also I give you and your descendants after you. The land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan. Watch this. As an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I'm going to be their God forever, and I'm going to give them the land forever. Now, if you examine history, it almost looks like God was wrong about this prophecy and this promise that He made. Because Israel has yet to occupy all the land. We've already looked at that. But also, God has not been their God. I mean, they were notorious. In all the way back, you go to the book of Judges. They were notorious for worshiping foreign gods. I mean, the northern kingdom never worshiped the Lord. They worshiped a golden calf that Jeroboam put up in Samaria. And so they worship Baal, they worship Molech, they worship Asherah, they worship all of these foreign gods. And, and, and today, if you go to Israel, probably the number one god in Israel isn't Jehovah. There's a few Orthodox Jews who are worshiping Jehovah the wrong way. They don't even understand who Jehovah is, he, that he's Jesus Christ. But most Israelites are, are humanists. And so they worship humanism, they worship the human being itself. And so here it says that, hey, I'm going to be their God. Hey, Lord, it doesn't look like it right now that you're their God. But the day is coming. This is an everlasting covenant. And the day is coming when Israel will worship the Lord Jesus as their God. We're told in Zechariah chapter 12 that 
that when the Lord stands on the Mount of Olives and that mountain splits in two, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, the one whom they hung on that cross. They're going to look on him and they're going to mourn as a mother mourns for her the loss of her for the loss of her firstborn child, they're going to mourn. They're going to look at him and say, look what we did. We crucified El Shaddai. We crucified God Almighty. We crucified the King of Kings. We crucified the King of Israel. And they're going to know that he is God, and they're going to worship him as God forever. And they're going to be given that land of Israel, and they're going to live there forever. It's an everlasting covenant. And God does it all. I mean, if it was up to them, they had already lost it. God does it all. Now, it's, again, it looks like there's some conditions here. Let's go back to Genesis and, and, and verse number 9. And I'm going to read several verses here, so follow me here as we look at this rite of circumcision that God gives to Abraham. It says in verse number 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. So he almost sounds like he's making a condition here. But he says, this is my, my covenant. Again, he says, this is my covenant, which you're going to have to do something your part with. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. Now, Abraham is 90 years old. I was circumcised when I was a baby. That's all right. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't remember it, thank the Lord. But if God asked me to get, if I wasn't circumcised and God asked me to get circumcised today, I might say the deal's off. Because <laughs> that's got to be a painful process. It was so painful that when those men of Shechem decided that they would get circumcised to please the Jews and make a deal with the Jews, they were in pain for like seven days, and so they were in so much pain that they just let the Israelites slaughter them. They, I mean, I think they were, they were ready to just slaughter us. I mean, we, we're in so much pain, put us out of our misery. So it's a very painful thing to get circumcised. And so he tells Abraham, you and your, you are going to get circumcised, and he who is, verse number 12, he who is eight days old among you shall also be circumcised. Remember what happened to Jesus on the Eighth day after he was born, he went to the temple to do what? To be circumcised. So so every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money, any slave that you buy from a foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house who is is bought with your money must be circumcised. All your slaves have to be circumcised. He's very detailed about this. And my, and again, he says, this is my covenant shall be in your flesh. In other words, what he's saying here is this is a sign of my covenant. It will be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Watch this. Now, this looks like a condition. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his nation. Literally nation there. He who has broken my covenant. In other words, he's not part of the covenant. And so he's not one of my 
people. Now, again, if you look at verse 14 especially, you look at this whole thing, it almost sounds like God has placed a condition on salvation for the male or condition for being an Israelite, a condition for being part of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is, is exactly like our covenant, our covenant of faith. In other words, in order to be part of the covenant, you have to be circumcised. And I'm going to make a statement here. In order to be part of God's covenant of grace, you have to be circumcised. If you have not been circumcised, you are not part of God's covenant of grace. Now, let me explain that in just a minute. But this isn't a normal contract. It doesn't have conditions. Now, we just put a condition on it. But it doesn't have conditions. It's unconditional. God saved Abraham. Why? Chapter 15, verse 6. He believed God. And it was accounted to him by righteousness. So he was saved by his faith in these unconditional promises. He believed in these unconditional promises and he was saved by faith. Now what kind of faith did he have? Faith simply means that he agrees to agree with God. He agrees to enter into this agreement with God. That's what faith is. That's what faith in the cross is. We agree to enter into this agreement with God that we can't save ourselves. Only Christ can save us by dying for us on a cross. That's what real faith is. So there's circumcision, that, that this right that God is instituting here. Their circumcision is only an outward sign that they have entered into God's covenant of grace and they had become children of God by faith now Paul kind of clears some of this up over to Romans so go with me over to Romans chapter 4 thank goodness we have Paul to clear some of these things up because I probably got you all confused but Paul's going to get you straightened out here Now, look at what he says. He says in verse number 9 of chapter 4 of Romans. He says, does this blessedness then come upon the uncircumcised only or upon the circumcised also? Now, what blessedness is he talking about? He's talking about the blessedness of salvation. You look back in verses 7 and 8. It says, blessed are those who whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's the blessedness of the Abrahamic covenant. That's also the blessedness of the covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul asks this question. He says, does this blessedness, does salvation then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Now, watch Here's what we learn as he makes this case that it comes upon everybody who believes, who agrees to enter into an agreement with God. Listen to what he says. He says, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. He's, he's paraphrasing Genesis 15, 6. 
Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then he asked the question, how then was it accounted? Or really, when was it accounted? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? Now, I want you to think about that a minute. Was Abraham saved by faith before he was circumcised or after by his circumcision? He was saved before he was circumcised. And God made that very clear. In fact, 13 years had passed from the time that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness to the time that he was circumcised. So he was saved for 13 years. Even when he was doing all those terrible things, he was still saved while he was uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, Paul says. And he received the sign, the sign of the uh, circumcision, as a sign of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe. Those who are of the uncircumcision, the, the, the Gentiles, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those not only who are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Now that's a lot of words, but it's pretty clear what he's saying right there. Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. And and the case is clear cut. We can make that case without any problems by looking at Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 and look at the chapter that we're looking at right now all right so this sign of circumcision that we're looking at now in genesis didn't save any of these people it was only an outward sign of what had taken place inwardly that's exactly what paul says again if you back up stay there in romans and back up to chapter 2 And look at verse 28, chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is the one outwardly. In other words, you don't get saved by circumcision. It doesn't save you. Nor is circumcision that really matters that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is the one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. That's why I said a while ago, everybody who's saved has been circumcised. Your heart has been circumcised. Listen, circumcision is painful. Very painful. Circumcision is something you know happened unless you, it happens to you when you're a baby. And I've got to tell you, those little baby, know, they know what's happening too. Have you ever seen a baby be circumcised? They don't like it. And I don't blame them. Circumcision is very painful. And you know it's happened. The circumcision of the heart is exactly the same way. Listen to me real carefully. If you're here today and you don't know that you've been circumcised in your heart, you're not saved. God has cut away that flesh. He's cut away that self-centeredness. He's cut, you know, I actually think he's still circumcised cutting away. But when we were given that new creation, we were were circumcised. Our heart was, that old evil heart was started being cut away by the Lord. And it's a very, very painful process. Now, but 
again, this raises the question. I mean, you got to ask the question. Go, let's go hang on. Well, you don't have to hang on there. But go back to Genesis 17. And you got to ask the question. I mean, I, I could just see Abraham, 90 years old, having to circumcise himself. And going to his servants and saying, guys, Abram, father, God's told me I'm going to be the father of nations. You believe that? But guess what we got to do, guys? We got to all go out and circumcise. Say what? What's circumcision? Abraham explains what it is. I'm surprised they didn't stone him on the spot. I mean, the question, you got to ask the question, why would God put them through that painful process if that didn't save them? Let me tell you why he did it. To set them apart from the uncircumcised. An outward sign that set them apart from those who were not circumcised. It's as if, God put them through that painful process as a sign of what had taken place inwardly that they were different from the Gentile. And what marked the Gentile off more than anything else? The same thing that marked the Gentile, the heathens off today more than anything else, is their sexual immorality. And so what God does, he takes the tool of sex and says, you're going to I'm going to separate that tool unto me. And it's going to be used for my purposes. It's very, very, I don't, I'm trying to think of a word. It's very profound. Because what God was saying is that you're going to use that to have children. And who are those children going to be dedicated to? Those children are going to be dedicated to me. You're, not only you are dedicated to me. Your descendants are going to be dedicated to me. And you're going to be different from the rest of this world. And that's what the sign of circumcision, and it, and it cost them something. It's going to cost you something to be different from the rest of this world. Just like it cost us something to be different from the rest of this world. It's a painful process to separate yourself from the world. But Abraham says you're going to separate from yourself from the world and you're going to walk before me Blamelessly. You're going to walk before me in truth. But again, the outward sign was only, the, uh, only effective. I mean, there's a lot of people who have been circumcised that aren't saved. The outward sign was only effective if something had taken place inwardly. If the person had been circumcised inwardly, through faith. Abraham had been circumcised by faith. He believed God and he was given the very righteousness of God. Paul kind of sums this, up, this matter up again. and Go back to the New Testament. Pass Romans to the book of Galatians. Where I had you a while ago. And there's a couple of passages there I want to look at. In Galatians chapter 5, look down at verse number 6. 
what Paul says. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, the same Christ Jesus that Abraham was dealing with that day, El Shaddai, God Almighty, in, in, in El Shaddai, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It was a sign that you were a Jew. That's all it was. It was a sign that you should be a child of God. But it doesn't avail anything. What avails is faith, your faith, working through love. What kind of love? Love for God, love for one another. That's that's the fruit of a circumcised heart. If your heart's really been circumcised, then you love the Lord. You didn't love the Lord before you were saved. But when your heart got circumcised, you love the Lord. And because you love the Lord, we love one another. And nobody, not even a person as great as Abraham, could circumcise their own heart. Only God could circumcise your heart. That's why it's a work of faith. You put your faith in Christ, in El Shaddai, and he has the power to circumcise your heart. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Now you think about Nicodemus. Was he circumcised? You better believe he was circumcised on the eighth day. A Hebrew of Hebrews, just like Paul was. He was circumcised. He was even the teacher of Israel. And the Lord said to him, you must, in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Now what did he mean by that? Your heart has to be circumcised. Nicodemus, you've been circumcised. You're a Jew, but you're not a child of God. And if you don't get circumcised in your heart, you're never going to make it to heaven. I mean, here, I, I mean, you talk about a humbling word to the, maybe the greatest man in the nation of Israel at that time. You got to lay it out for him. He said, hey, you're going to go to hell just like everybody else if your heart is not circumcised. See, that's why Paul sums it up. And, I, and, and, and I, we could have just gone to this verse and probably saved ourselves a lot of time. But look at, you're still in Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. You left there, go, I should have told you to stay there. Look at 15. For in Christ Jesus, if you're in Christ Jesus, how do you get into Christ Jesus? You agree to be in agreement with God about who he is, that he's God Almighty, that he's died for your sins, that you can't save yourself. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but the new creation. It's everything. The new creation is absolutely everything. The new creation is the inward circumcision of the heart. And if you've been circumcised or not circumcised in the flesh, it doesn't matter, but it does matter whether or not your heart has been circumcised. And as I said before, If your heart's been circumcised, you know it. You've felt the pain. You know it's happened. If you don't know it's happened, I'm not trying to scare you you here today. Maybe I am trying to scare you. You're probably not saved. Because that's a a process that you know takes place in your heart. It changes you. It totally changes you. It makes you a new creation. It's what happened to Abraham, and it's what happened to anybody 
who agrees to be in agreement with God by faith. Faith in all his unconditional promises. For us believers, that unconditional promise is this. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you agree to be in agreement with God about that, that basic statement, then you'll be circumcised in your heart. And if you're circumcised, you have eternal life. What a deal. What a deal. You know, people that know me best know that I like to make a good deal. I mean, I don't buy anything, much of anything anyway, if it's not a good deal. I'm always looking for something on sale. I like making deals. But I can put all the good deals together that I've made in my life. And they are infinitely less significant than the greatest deal I ever made. And that was when I agreed to be in agreement with God. And by faith, I believed all the promises of God. You know, the moment I did that, I had some help. I've got to tell you, God gave me a lot of help in that. But the moment, because faith is a gift of God. The moment I believed, agreed to be in agreement, I knew that Jesus Christ is El Shaddai. I knew. I didn't need a theology class to tell me that. I hadn't read a Bible in, in, in 20 years when, when I got saved, maybe 30 years. And, and, and when I got saved, I knew Jesus is El Shaddai. I knew that this word is the word of God. I don't have any doubts about this word. This word is the word of God. You can doubt it all you want. You can doubt that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. I don't doubt that one bit. If you doubt it, I personally believe you're not saved. If you doubt the virgin birth, oh, how could God go into a woman and, and knit a, a God himself in the womb of a woman? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I don't know how he did it, but I believe it. I don't, I, and I, when I say I believe it, I don't have any doubts about it. I, I don't believe that because I, I've been convinced of that through books I've read or something like that. I believe that because I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And I walk before God in truth, in the truth of His Word. And, and man, you talk about a deal. It's free. It's free to cost me anything. Eternal life. A relationship with God. All the wisdom and knowledge of God opened up for me in this book. It didn't cost me anything. It was free. All I had to do was agree to be in agreement with God by faith. And to walk, and, and because I've been in agreement with God by faith, and my heart has been circumcised, I try to walk before God and with God. And walk with him in truth. And recognize that I am a wretched sinner without his grace. And that I owe everything. Everything I have every day. I owe 
to the Lord. And one day, I mean, the Lord is in the process. He saved me. His doing, his covenant. He, he sanctified me. I can't sanctify myself. He circumcised my heart. I mean, look, I could head back to the world tomorrow. I could head to the biggest casino in the United States and gamble everything I've got away. My wife would kill me, but God wouldn't. I wouldn't lose my salvation. He doesn't circumcise your heart and give you a new creation and then take it away because you're not a good little boy. That is a gift of God, not of works. It's all a gift. It's free. And it's, how long does it last? It's an everlasting covenant. And not only is he saving me and he's and he sanctifying sanctify me, he's going to glorify me. Can you imagine me glorified? I mean, as good looking as I am now, can you imagine me glorified? As bad looking as I am now, but can you imagine me glorified? Well, it would be a lot better on it to look at. You know what? In God's eyes, he's already made that deal. It's already a done deal. A done deal. He's made it. I'm glorified. I've been made righteous forever. What a deal. We all got a really good deal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him. Father, we just thank you for the great deal that you've given us. The salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. We just thank you for that. Lord, for that everlasting covenant that you've made with every person in this room who has agreed to be in agreement with you. Those who have agreed to receive the benefits of all the great promises you've made. Lord, you ask for us to walk with you now and blamelessly and in truth and before you, Lord, cognizant of your presence. But even when we fail at that, Lord, we, we still can count on your grace. Lord, we thank you for the circumcision of our hearts. We thank you for the change that you've made in our spirits and our lives. We just thank you for all the promises that, that we still have that have not been fulfilled. Lord, we just thank you for the promise of glory. We thank you for the promise of everlasting life in your presence. Father, we just can't imagine how wonderful all of that's going to be. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their Savior in a real way, Lord, to where they know that they felt that pain, they felt that circumcision, they felt that joy and that peace, that supernatural joy and peace that comes with salvation. Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't received that, Lord, show them just how simple it is to just turn to you and receive Christ and all of these promises. And by your Spirit, you'll show them truth, Lord. And that truth will set them free. Father, I just pray for you to work in the lives of everyone here today by the power of your Spirit. Lord, we're so grateful to you. Through Jesus Christ, it's in his name I pray. Amen.